Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. A couple housekeeping things. We're still working on the volume. Some of you have led, left reviews on places you're listening to the podcast. Recognize we have some challenges in the volume. We're doing our best to improve the volume. Hopefully this will be better. Um, second housekeeping thing is we're recording this in late August. Just thank you all that are engaging in my upcoming book. It's available on Amazon. You can just search my name, Richard Osler. The Kindle version is out now. The paperback version will be out on the 21st of September. So, And as you may know, all the proceeds are being donated to a charity of a young man who died by suicide, a gay teenager. So thank you for all you're doing um, for the book and to get the word of the book out. The book isn't really much about me. It's about LGBTQ people. So it's like the podcast I'm just bringing hundreds of stories against the various issues related to this space. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Alexander Baxter, who's living in California, but is in Utah today and has stopped by my home to do this podcast. And as by way of introduction, Twitter is an interesting place, and I am very active on Twitter. I'm the oldest person on Twitter I think sometimes, but um, one day I came across a Twitter profile that said gay and an elders corn president. I guess it's possible. And I've never seen that um, on someone's Twitter profile before. And um, I just thought it would be great to reach out to Alexander and have him on the podcast. He's got a great story for you, our listeners. He is a BYU graduate in psychology. He's currently a grad student at UC Davis. Um, we'll let him talk about the kind of grad work he's doing and also his hopes for his future career. Um, and as I mentioned, he's an elders corn president, so we'll talk about what it's like to be a gay elders corn president, if his bishop knows about that, if his stake president knows about that. Um, and we'll just give a, you know, talk about all these issues. We're going to start with um, Alexander's life before his mission and then we'll talk about his mission, and then we'll talk about his journey since his mission. Um, anything that you want to correct from a bio standpoint at this point, Alexander? No, that, that sounds really good. Thank you. And your voice sounds great. So I think you can hear, usually it's my guests you hear okay. It's my voice that is hard to hear, but maybe that's okay because we want to amplify guest voice. Tell our listeners your Twitter handle and how you came up with that handle. <laughs> the pie and queer 47 it's the pioneer 47 is uh the wi-fi password at the churches and uh i just thought pie and queer 47 was kind of a clever play on words and um as, as someone who is queer who's gay i feel my that i am a pioneer in many ways uh blazing un or new trails that have not really been uh walked before or that fewer are walking and so I think this is just a space where a lot of discovery can be made and um, sort of leading the way. So, yeah, it's meaningful, but it's also kind of kind of fun. It's a perfect thing for Twitter. Twitterful, Twitter is meaningful and kind of fun. Tell our listeners um, your blog. You've started a blog. I want you to give the blog address now and then at the end so as many as possible connect, can connect with your blog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started my blog relatively recently. Um, so that I just wanted a place where I could share my thoughts and experiences a little bit. Um, I don't have too many posts on it yet, but I plan to be making more posts coming up soon. 
And thanks for writing. I've read, I read your blog post and um, you've come out on Facebook. We may link to your Facebook or at least to the blog that talks about coming out. Let's go back um, before your mission. Let's talk about your family situation. Share with our listeners your family. Sure. I have a pretty unique family story and family situation. So I was born to a single mom. Um, I was born in California and I never have really known my biological father. He is actually Russian. My mom met him when she was living in, in Uzbekistan. She was living there with her mom, my grandma, um, and my mom was teaching English. My grandma was a nurse practitioner and they were, they were there. And uh, my mom and was pregnant and she decided with my father that it, it would just be, they didn't want me born there. They wanted me born in America and it just didn't really work for him to come to America. So I um, decided to split. It was on good terms. And so I was born in California, um, being raised by my mom, my grandma, and some of my other family, other grandparents too. Live, lived there until I was about two years old. And then um, my grandma put back in for uh, another assignment overseas and she got assigned to Madagascar. And so my mom decided to take me with. And so we went and lived in Madagascar for a while. Um, when I was about five years old, then uh, my grandma got assigned to live, uh, assigned to work in Kenya and uh, in Nairobi. And wow. so, yeah. Uh, so that was an important place because that's where my mom met the man that I call my dad now. Um, he's American. He was working at the embassy there. And my mom, I, I believe she was working in the um, post office that was in the American embassy at the time. And so that's where she met him. Uh, we were not members of the church. I wasn't wasn't born a member, but um, my dad was a member of the church, and he introduced my mom to the gospel. Um, he invited her to pray about the Book of Mormon, and she did. She gained a testimony, and we started going to church with him, and they fell in love and decided to get married. And so that happened while we were still living in Nairobi in Kenya. I was about six or seven years old at the time. While my mom, while they were on their honeymoon, um, my mom found a lump in her breast and it turned out to be cancer. And so that ended our stay in Africa pretty quickly. Um, my dad, um, my dad was working a government job. And so he applied to be sent back to the States where we could get better medical care. And so that's where we went. Uh, we moved to Virginia then, and my mom started cancer treatments. I was relatively young. I didn't fully understand the gravity of the situation. I knew mom was sick, but maybe didn't understand just how sick. But my mom did beat the cancer uh, that time, at least. She was, um, you know, she was pretty lucky and got healthy again. It went into remission. But it did, um, it made her so that she couldn't have kids of her own. And my mom really wanted to have a big family. She'd always dreamed of that. And so that was really hard for her. So my family started looking into other options. Um, and so that is when we eventually decided to adopt from Russia. And that's how my two, my two brothers were adopted. And that's a pretty long and uh, miraculous story. A lot of things I feel that were led by God, how I got my two brothers from Russia, but I love them and I'm glad to have them. Um, it took that process of adopting my brothers took almost two years. And so um, we started that process while I was still living in Virginia. When I was about, um, I was fourth grade, uh, I moved, we then, my dad put it in for an assignment to go back overseas. Um, it's a lot cheaper <laughs> to live overseas when you're, you have a government job. 
And that's sort of how we were able to afford some of this, uh, the medical bills and also the adoptions uh, moved back overseas. So we got assigned to live in Vienna, Austria. And so fourth grade, that's where we moved. And I loved it there. It's, it's so beautiful. Um, that's where we were living when uh, we eventually were able to adopt my two brothers. When kids are, they were relatively older when they were adopted. Uh, they were about seven years old, both of them. And when the kids are adopted that late, uh, there can often be a lot of problems. Uh, just they, they didn't receive the love and care that kids are supposed to receive when they were little. And that makes it really hard for them to connect and attach to adults and others um, later in life. And so we definitely encountered some of that. It was a very, I would say it's a pretty challenging time for my parents, especially. Uh, I was happy to have brothers. I didn't always relate to them or understand them very well, but um, it was definitely a big adjustment for everyone. Um, a lot was happening that time. But we made it, you know, we made it through it. Um, eventually, uh, it was, it was about, uh, I did fourth, fifth, and sixth grade in Vienna. Then in seventh grade, moved to Frankfurt, Germany. It was there that um, my mom's cancer metastasized and came back. Um, and I, am, I realized I am getting a little ahead of myself. There was, there was something else important that happened when we were living in Austria for this story. Um, we got a call from our bishop one day, and he said, hey, there is this lady that was traveling with her husband on a business trip and her husband died suddenly in the middle of the night unexpectedly and she was a member of the church and uh, she had she didn't speak german she didn't really she was just kind of in shock and since we were one of the few uh, american members of the church in the area we were asked if we could go kind of help her out and so um our family and another family there, we went and helped this woman out for a little bit. And she was very appreciative of that. She kind of just got on her feet and made some life plans. Um, I'm just going to put a little pin in that because that will be important later in this story. Um, and then the other important thing there that um, is we also, our family also decided that we were going to adopt um, another, uh, another kid. Um, we decided to adopt a little girl from China. And so um, that process was not as long. It took us about a year. We were living in Frankfurt, Germany, when we eventually were able to go get her. And she brought a lot of joy into our lives. Um, we had just, we had not adopted her for very long when my mom's cancer came back. At this point, when we were living in Frankfurt, we also started homeschooling um, because my brothers were having some, they, they were starting school a little bit later than usual and um, had some they just wanted more attention. Uh, my parents wanted to give them more attention to help them in their journey and their education. And I always loved being at home with my mom <laughs> since I was little. And so I, I was said, oh, yeah, I'd love to homeschool too. So we started homeschooling there. We were only in Frankfurt for a year. Um, when the cancer came back, we decided to move back again to the States. So we moved back to Virginia for um, better medical care. That was an especially challenging time in our family's life. We didn't... Uh, I knew oh, I was older. I was able to process and understand what was happening to my mom and just how the gravity of the situation. There, there was my bro one of my bro adopted brothers was actually out of our home for a while uh, during this time, um, some behavioral reasons, and he was getting some help. Um, so it was on me and my other brother. Really, we we were my mom's caretakers while we homeschooled. We cleaned the house. We did all the meals. Did all the laundry. My dad had a pretty long commute, and so um, you know he got back relatively late. 
we did all the babysitting too. We always accompanied my mom to her doctor appointments. Um, I also had a pretty hard time making friends then. Um, I was a little, I was overweight, but I was also, um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but living overseas, it was really easy to make friends because you meet another American and you instantly are friends because there's not many of you. And um, I kind of just opened my arms up to people I met and like, oh, who are you? And so anyway, I, it was a difficult time. But when my mom finally did pass away, um, I was almost 15. So it was about a two, two and a half year battle with the cancer. It was, it was hard. I did not want to lose her. There was a lot of hard times uh, going through that with faith. You know, I would pray a lot that she would get better. And it was really hard to see her health continue deteriorating, even despite these prayers I was saying. I sometimes wondered, well, did I not have enough faith? I didn't, I felt like that wasn't it. I felt like I did. So then it sort of turned into anger. Well, why would loving Heavenly Father, loving God, let this happen? Um, but my mom taught me a really important lesson. She always said, when you pray for me to get better, she said, please um, also pray for the strength to accept God's will, no matter what happens. She, she didn't want me to be angry. And that, that has been a very helpful lesson for me in that situation and in many others. Um, so that by the time she did pass away, you know, I, my heart had been softened a little by that. It was also somewhat of a relief when she finally did pass away. The cancer eventually reached um, her brain and she was having hallucinations and she was not really the mom I knew. And so it was, it was relieving to see her, her pass. I felt like she was, she was at peace and that um, I would get to see her again. Um, and that's something I've, I've come to peace with now. I, of course, I miss her. Of course, I wish she was in my life. But I felt her presence, you know, at, at big important parts of my life at, and at other times. And I, I know I'll see her again someday. So um, I've come to peace with that. But um, after my mom died, we... She wanted to be buried in Salt Lake in Utah, where my dad plans to be buried. And um, so we did our burial in Salt Lake. We did her burial there. And that lady that I mentioned earlier in the story, um, whose husband died, she was one of the people that came to pay her respects to my mom and her family. And she came up to my dad after the funeral and said, hey, you guys were there for me and my family uh, when I needed you, when my husband passed away. Um, she had also previously been divorced, as my dad had previously been divorced before he married um, my mom. And so she knew what that was like. And she said, hey, if you ever want to talk or ever need anything, please just let me know. My dad was really hurting, and he took her up on that. And so they just started talking. And they kept talking even after we uh, left Utah, went back to Virginia. Um, I was back in public school at this point, and that was a ro rocky transition, but through that whole, for about a year, uh, my dad started, was kept talking to this woman and eventually they decided to get married after a year, um, a year after my mom died. That was a little hard for me at first. I, I won't lie. I think, you know, natural feelings of, oh, why are you trying to replace my mom? But in hindsight, I'm, I'm so glad that, um, that worked out and that my dad was able to find someone to fill that hole in his heart. Um, I really love my stepmom. She's really great. Uh, I appreciate her and all the extra family and her kids um, that she's brought into my life. Um, I really love that. So it's kind of funny. By the time I was a senior in high school, there were six of us at home. My my brother eventually came back to live with us, and there's six of us at home, and no no one was biologically related. 
Um, so family has kind of been a fluid concept for me. Um, the rest of the story after that is relatively straightforward. I graduated from high school and um, did a year at BYU, then went on my mission to Tacoma, Washington, and then finished my psychology degree at BYU. And now I'm at uh, UC Davis, uh, continuing my psychology studies. That's a fascinating story. I'm glad you went through that, Alexander. Tell our listeners the name of your mom, your dad, and your stepmom. Of course, yeah. So my mom, her name was Holly, Holly Baxter. Um, my dad's name is Robert, Robert Baxter. And then my stepmom is Anne, Anne Baxter, previously Anne Dykstra. And uh, coincidentally, I know Anne Baxter. I pre did a presentation at BYU and a a class about LGBTQ, and she was one that invited me, and I was so grateful to meet your stepmom. And what a unique family um, to have all those people in that same home that aren't biologically related. And I like your word fluid. And very unique life story with lots of lessons that you've learned. I love one of the things that your mother taught you is she knew you could be really angry about this, and she was so thoughtful about your future and she recognized that even with prayer, this might be God's plan for her, um, or just the, the realities of mortality with this terrible disease. And I love the way she prepared you for that. What a thoughtful, forward-thinking, wonderful woman she is. Talk about your mission. I will talk about, did you, some of my guests, most of my guests kind of know their sexual orientation pretty young, but there's some that really don't. They don't really, I, I don't they just talk about your sexual orientation. Um, is this on your radar map pre-mission? Yeah. So I, I did not actually realize that I was gay until I was almost over a year into my mission. Um, I always knew I was a little different in some way. I always thought it was that I was not as manly as the other guys, that maybe I was more feminine. Um, I knew, noticed that about myself. My family noticed. And um, for a long time, I tried very hard to control that. I tried to not to make it seem like I was manly or tried to hide uh, maybe the, the feminine qualities about myself, but I never really attributed it to being gay. I dated, went on a lot of dates in high school and my freshman year of college. And so I thought, how could I be, how could I be gay? I'm going on dates with girls. <laughs> it just never, didn't really cross my mind. In hindsight, I look back and yeah, I, I w I've always been gay. I've, the feelings I've had for other guys at times have, are just undeniable. And I, I can recognize those feelings in hindsight. But at the time, I just thought, oh, maybe this is, must just be what friendship feels like or things like that. Um, it wasn't really until I was well over a year into my mission that I eventually realized, oh, I'm gay. Uh, even then, at the time, I wasn't even willing to use that label. I was, I was willing to admit, oh, I have, I have same-sex attraction. Even then, I didn't. I wasn't willing to accept I have it. I just thought of it as something that had happened to me maybe a few times, but not something that was currently part of who I was, just something in the past and something I'm moving forward from. Um, it, took, kind of, it took a conversation with a mission companion to sort of reach that point. Um, I, it's funny, I, this mission companion and I did not actually get along very well. We are, we are friends now. Um, now that we don't have to live together and work together, but um, but maybe that's what I needed uh, to sort of have this breakthrough or realization. But there's just something about the way that this mission companion asked me questions about, you know, he, he said, he asked me one day if I was gay and there were rumors about me in the mission, 
um, that I was gay. A lot of people would, uh, would say that about me. I always denied it. I can recognize why they say it now. Um, there were things I said and did that, you know, probably were gay or I was just trying to show my love to companions or others in ways that were coming naturally to me. I, I didn't recognize it at the time that that what the affection that I was trying to give or the things I was saying um, were not the things that many of the other missionaries that were straight were saying, but I can see it now and I can see why they would say that. The rumors were pretty hurtful, but um, I, you know, I I don't blame I don't blame them for that. I, I, it this is how it's worked out. So, but anyway, this missionary, my companion, had this conversation with me, and I he said, "Are you gay?" And I said, "No, no, not I'm not." And he said, "Well, okay, that's okay, but he said, is this true or is this true or you say you've done this or has experienced this?" if that's true, then it might mean you're gay. And he said, like, that's okay, but um, that's something you may just want to be thinking about. And don't really know what it was about that, but something just kind of sunk deep in my heart and burned in me saying it was true. And for the first time ever, I admitted, I guess maybe I have experienced that before. That's all I could do then. Um, That's really all I had the space in myself to do. But it it was an important step for me. Unfortunately, it did kind of take, I got pretty hard on myself after that because I was thinking about it in terms of something that had happened, something I would never allow to happen again, just something to move forward from. So when I was, after I was transferred away from this companion, for my next several companions, I was, I was very hard on myself. I thought if I could just be very strictly obedient and just be the best missionary I could, that this would go away. God would help me. Um, and it also made me be hard on my mission companions because I was trying to expect that level of perfection from them as well. Um, I didn't want, I wanted to be doing the best and I wouldn't, didn't want a companion maybe to ruin that. And so, um, I really regret how I treated some of them. And I've, I've talked with my mission companions since then sort of unpacked this and apologized and they understand, but yeah, it led to some pretty dark times after that. Thanks for being so honest, Alexander. It's interesting, this missionary companion. It's a very unique story to sort of, my general impression and general advice is don't out somebody or don't ask somebody if they're gay. That usually is a conversation just to try to be a safe person so that they can come out. But there may be exceptions to that, especially for parents or a trusted friend, but sounds like this missionary companion, that Overall, are you glad he he asked those questions? Yeah, I am. That was uh, that was an important step for me. Um, this was during a companionship inventory that we were having, <laughs> <laughs> so we were sort of talking some things out about our companionship, and we there was a we did not we were both pretty uh, strong headed, I think, or very um, wanting to take control, and so that we sort of clashed in a lot of ways. So we had a lot to talk about anyway. But I think this was something on his mind. And the way he asked was, you know, he said, I've heard these rumors. I just was wondering if you could tell me yourself, like, is the, are these true or not? He said, I, I chose not to really believe them. But I think maybe there are things I was doing that made him think it too. And um, he felt it was important maybe to talk about. So, Do you want to share any of the things that you, that caused people to think you were gay that straight people wouldn't have done? 
Um, sounds sure. like it wasn't stuff that obviously gets you sent home from a mission. It was just, I don't know what right word, mannerisms or just behavior that just... Yeah, Do you sure. want to share any of that with our listeners? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. So, yeah, mannerisms, maybe the way I talked. Um, when I was a freshman at BYU, I did a year before my mission there, um, I made new friends, and some of them were very comfortable using touch maybe as a love language. And um, I had not really had friends like that before. And I, <laughs> I don't know about maybe some of their sexual orientations. I don't know, but... There were um, guys I cuddled with or things like that um, occasionally, and I really liked how it felt. And I and I just sort of laugh at myself in hindsight because at the time I just thought, wow, like this is what having friends feels like. I really like this feeling. <laughs> um, I, hindsight, I can recognize, oh, maybe those were more than feelings of friendship. But so, and I, I talked I talked about that um, as a missionary. So I think that was one of the things that people were like, oh, uh, straight straight guys don't typically cuddle. Or if they do, it's like only a joke. Um, and so that was one thing. And I had a few companions that I felt really close to, really attached to. And um, maybe I think I just, the way I talked to them or um, made them think that, or um, there are some companions that I just would sometimes like, like giving hugs to a lot. And, you know, it all just sort of felt natural to me, but I think maybe they might've felt uncomfortable by it. I don't know. Um, so you know, if any of them are listening, I do apologize. I I do want, I didn't really realize what I was doing at the time. And I look intent there, you know, some would say, I don't know what the rules are about elders giving a, a bro hug to another elder. I assume that's okay to do. I would say the intent is sort of the question there. And it sounds like your intent was never to do anything inappropriate. There was nothing. So I would say... What you did and, you know, it was just innocent, you know, there wasn't an intent there to do anything inappropriate, but that boundary, what for some was just, you know, caused a yellow flag to come up or someone to wonder. But in a, another hand, I, you know, we've got sons that give bro hugs. All our sons at our house, I'm pretty sure straight. Um, I think they've come out to me, to me by now if they weren't. Three are married, although that doesn't necessarily mean, but I they give bro hugs and and so I don't want to create a culture where everybody so we quit giving bro hugs or we're so have so much homophobia that everybody gives a bro hug, you know, that everybody feels they're gay. I just think we can normalize just appropriate, you know, bro hugs is what I call. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um I saw all the bros doing bro hugs and I wanted to be involved and participate. But I think maybe when I did it, because I was not, I was not really a bro and you know, that way, I think maybe they thought, Oh, wait, are you, what, what's the meaning here? And I never really meant anything by it other than, yeah. Oh, I just want to participate. But exactly. And that's, there's no intent to do anything wrong. So I hope you're kind to yourself as you look back, Alexander, and I hope everybody else is kind and just recognizes that it's just part of life. Um, talk about anything else you want to talk about your mission. I will just say that there were, there's been a lot of scars and a lot of pain from that experience of um, trying so hard to hide it once I realized I was gay, um, trying so hard to and then just like thinking back, there were there were a few missionaries that in hindsight I recognized, oh, they were 
maybe teasing me about it or were not being very kind about it. Uh, they were asking me very leading questions to try and get me to say things about, um, you know, oh, yeah, admit you've had a dream about guys before. And I'm like, oh, I, <laughs> like, oh, I guess maybe it's not that uncommon. So I'm like, oh, I guess, yeah, I have. And then they're like, oh, you're gay or whatever. You know, there there is some pain and some trauma from that. Um, I feel I've relatively moved past it. Um, it's part of what happened. But it really made me double down hard. Um, for the rest of my mission and after. Um, I do think, though, that if I had been aware of my sexual orientation before my mission, I do think some of that pain would have been avoided. I think that um, I would have gone in with my eyes open, and I think that I would have you know, been able to recognize the feelings that I was having and been able to maybe walk through it a little bit better or at least know how to, at least just be aware. So I think that that, that just, I think it would have, it was hard no matter what to realize I was gay for me, but, um, I wish it, it, it had happened sooner. It sounds like you're really trusting and, um, and we're pretty vulnerable. And then that came back to bite you, which would lead to pain and trauma. And, um, I admire you kind of navigating that and staying active in the church and, um, yeah, the Brotherhood of Missionaries and her church should be the balm of Gilead. So to, for you to be kind of vulnerable and open up and have that then turn around, you kind of put your heart on a, pl heart on a platter where it can be speared really easily because it's just out there. And then it did get speared. And then the reaction to that is you've got to, you just close up your heart and isolate it and lock it up and and, and because you don't want to experience that pain and trauma. So I think you did a pretty good job, but I'd certainly, I'm not a therapist, but I'd certainly validate the trauma and the pain that that caused you. I'm just going to read a little bit from this upcoming book. Chapter 7 is uh, Ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And one of the quotes in here is from Sister Carol McConkie that says, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we need to fix that. And one of the examples I saw of that is, um, um, was in 2019 in the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Mission, as told by one of the missionaries serving there, Elder Dashiell Miner, who is kind of from the California area. Berkeley is where he, well, that's his brother. Don't, me, don't get, get me confused here. They're a family in um, northern um, the Bay Area. But anyway, one day during leadership conference, our mission president, um, during... Sorry, I'm not a terrible reader, as you know. <laughs> the subject came up about how we can improve. This is a mission leadership. I raised my hand and talked about how we could be more sensitive to LGBTQ brothers and sisters by stopping the gay jokes. Quote, we are missionaries of Jesus Christ and his restored church. Our example as missionaries set the stage for the way the community sees us. Shouldn't we be the arch, archetype of his love for all Christians? Another Missionary Commande had a gay brother and dealt with cruel jokes, gay jokes from other members of the church. The mission president, Darren Mansell, then reaffirmed the comments by saying that he, that he had some gay missionaries in the mission, many of whom were some of his best missionaries. Moreover, he mentioned that some gay LDS members can be examples to us, such as the recent BYU valedictorian Matt Easton. That day, there seems a resolve to repent and be more sensitive to the silent majority of those who have gay family members and friends. 
So I just think stop the gay jokes as a way to improve mission culture and church culture just seems like a no-brainer to me, Alexander. No one wins from that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and so we just traumatize people that are LGBTQ if we have a culture um, that normalizes gay jokes. So I think that mission improved that day is Elder Minor um, invited the, the mission to be better. Um, talk about BYU and just your time at BYU dating women. I don't know if you dated men. I don't know, you know, when you sort of fully recognized the same-sex attraction being gay. Just keep sharing your story with our listeners. Sure. So I came home. I left my mission a few weeks early so I could make it in for the BYU semester that was starting. And I remember I remember when they the senior couple drove me to the airport and sitting on the airplane, I was so scared. I was terrified. I just, because I had sort of, I'd reached by the end of my mission, I'd reached a pretty good place with, um, you know, I accepted, okay, I had, you know, maybe same sex attraction before, but it was not going to really happen again. And that I sort of reached a peace with that. And that worked for, for the end of my mission. And then as I was starting to come, you know, now I'm here on, I am on the plane and boy, now it's, I'm wondering how well will this work now that I'm not a missionary, now, now that I'm not focused 100% on God's work um, all the time. And I was so scared. I, no one really at home really knew. Well, I say that, but people did. My parents, I, I'm sure, knew. In fact, they, uh, there was a time before my mission when they actually sat down and asked me if I was gay. I did not react very well to that. I was upset that they would ask. I was mad that they would ask. In hindsight, I, I wish I hadn't reacted that way. Um, it should not be an insult to be asked if you're gay, but that's where I was at at the time. And I was just so offended that they would ask me that they would think that about me. Um, and I, part of it was the timing too. We were on a family vacation and I just, I was like, what? Like, don't let grandma over here. Like, why, why are you asking me this now? But I did not react well, but they did lay important groundwork because um, they said, you know, we will still, we still love you if you are, but I just was not in a space to even think that or talk about that. I stormed off. I didn't go home for several weeks after that. I didn't really engage with my family very much after that. I was really upset. Um, I think it was more reflecting my own internalized homophobia, I suppose, or my own uh, difficulty accepting that. But so I came home from my mission and went straight back into BYU just days after coming home. And I remember walking around campus, just looking around sort of in a panic at, as everyone goes between classes thinking they know, they must know I'm gay, like how, but I'm not, but maybe I am, but what if they know? And I just, I was panicking, but I remember I wanted to sort of hit the ground running and try and get in front of it. So I thought if I'm just, I'm just going to be really obedient, I'm going to pray, read my scriptures, go to the temple, uh, worship, things like that. And I'm going to go on lots of dates with girls and just sort of nip this in the bud before uh, it really ever becomes a thing. So I did. I tried to go on dates with girls a lot. Um, there, was, there was one girl that I did feel, I felt I really liked her. Um, she was very special to me. Um, and I thought, wow, okay, I guess I can still be attracted to women. In hindsight, I don't, I don't know if maybe the feelings I had for her were the same I, I've had for certain guys in my life before, but and I don't know if anything would have ever worked with her. She didn't really feel the same way about me. 
so we never really even got to date. But, um, you know, so there, I did try uh, to make things work with, with girls. It just, I never really even had the chance, never even dated, uh, got into a relationship with anyone. It just never worked. Secretly, I wondered, is it because they know I'm gay or they know about me? Like, and that's why they don't like me, but I have no way of knowing that. Um, so that, that's, uh, that was sort of how I lived for about two, two and a half years. And towards the time that I was almost done at BYU, something happened that really was a catalyst for the rest of my story. What happened was I had a roommate that I was really good friends with. Um, we were just randomly roommates at one point and we got on, got along together very well. We had a lot of similar interests, um, and a lot of similar history. And so we were really, we just became very good friends and we decided to keep rooming together and living together. Um, so we did that off and on, went home for summer and such, but we lived together for about two years and we're just great friends. And he had just started dating this girl and he, it was his first significant girlfriend and he was pretty happy about it, pretty excited. And I remember the, this was right before winter was about, the winter semester was about to start. One night he came home and back to the apartment and was really upset, crying. And I said, oh, what's wrong? I, mean, I was very concerned. So he had just broken up with his girlfriend. And um, eventually he said, we broke up because I'm gay. He came out to me. Mm. And my heart just hurt for him so much that, you know, he was going through this. And he said, you know, he was trying so hard to make it work with this girl um, but he felt like he couldn't keep the secret from her. And so he decided to come out to her and she broke up with him because of it. And so that we had a, we had a pretty good talk. Um, we had a pretty good talk about it. I could relate so well to what he was saying and he didn't know why. And I, I hadn't really told anyone I had told my parents, I came out, I did officially come out to them pretty soon after I came home from my mission. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. I didn't, I got a prompting that I should come out to them, that I should tell them, but I didn't want to, partly because I didn't want it to be true, but I, the prompting kept nagging me for two months at least, got to be the only prompting I would receive. I'd pray for guidance. What classes should I take next quarter or next semester? And go tell your parents, go come out to them. And that's not what I asked, but it's just what I got. And eventually I, I did it. They, asked, they said they loved me. They asked if I wanted to talk about it. I said, no just want you to know. And that's where I left it. Um, but so after this experience with my, my roommate and my friend, um, after we chatted for a while, it was pretty late at night, um, I started getting this like really bad knot in my stomach because I started realizing, oh man, what if these feelings of that I thought were friendship, what if there's been more this whole time? And I, some, I wondered about that with some friends before, but there was sort of this safety net of, but they're straight, so it wouldn't, doesn't even matter if I have feelings for them because they're straight and it, you know, they would never feel the same way. And so that it will never be an issue. But when my best friend came out to me like this, it scared me because I didn't really know what my feelings were. And I also, I recognize this is sort of letter of the law and where I was at at the time, but I thought in my head, well, at BYU, they're a boy and a girl aren't supposed to sleep in the same room together on principle, but what about two gay guys? We, we did share a room and, and things like that. And I just thought, I don't even know if this is proper. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Should I even, so I was freaking out. So I texted my dad, I said, dad, are you still awake? And he didn't answer. So I assume he was asleep, 
But I thought, oh, oh, well, I'm calling you anyway. So I called him. I woke him up, I think. And I explained what just happened. And I said, what do I do? Am I, is this a, what, and he, my dad said, I have no idea. No idea. He said, but you are always welcome to come home if, and stay the night here if you want. Um, you should, you need to do it. You need, you feels right. And so I, I eventually I decided I, I should probably, I wanted to go home and stay the night with my family. And I didn't know if maybe if it would be right for us to still live together or what. I, I was just terrified. Um, I was acting on fear is what was happening. So I went back to my roommate. He had not fallen asleep yet. And I just said, hey, are you awake? And I said, yeah. And so I came in and I, I honestly feel like I was having a panic attack in this moment because I, my heart was racing. I was stammering. I didn't, I was just so afraid. And I basically turned the lights on and said, hey, uh, guess what? Me too. <laughs> I'm also gay. And I don't know if I should stay the night here. And I'm just getting my lunch and I'm going to go home. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. And I just left before he could say anything else because I, I didn't even know what to do or say. And so that that was hard. Um, and I, I said, I still want, I still wanted to be friends. I still wanted to be in each other's lives. I just sort of thought maybe it would be better if we didn't live together just in case anything happened. And in hindsight, I recognize gay people can live together and it's totally fine. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that you have feelings for each other per se. Um, there's a lot that I wish I did differently in this situation, but I decided my, my friend, was really hurt by that, by the fact that I left and the fact I didn't want to live with him anymore. Um, he had not come out to really anyone, um, not even his family. And I, you know, his, his girlfriend dumps him and now his best friend leaves him. I can only imagine just how hard that was. And I, I wish I could go back and do it all differently. Um, I was really acting on fear, not on faith. Um, I, you know, I, I felt I was doing what I needed to protect myself. And, you know, so I do recognize that that's valid in that, in some extent that I felt that was right for me at the time. I don't, I wish I could go back and be in a better headspace so that I would have made a better decision. Um, but that was so hard for me that I just, I, so I started looking for a new place to live and it was sort of like a, a breakup in a way, even though we were not dating, um, or anything like that, but it was basically like a breakup. It was very hard. He didn't really want to be friends anymore after that. And um, it took me a while to try and find a new place to live. I was living on campus at the time and I petitioned to, I explained my situation to the housing office and petitioned to be released, but they would, they didn't consider that a valid reason to be released from my contract. So they were willing to let me transfer to a new apartment um, in the same complex. Um, there was only one open spot. So I took it. And it was in a new ward um, in the middle of the semester. And it was, I didn't know, really know anyone. And everyone already had their friends. And it was just, I was really alone. And it was, it was probably one of the hardest things that ever happened to me. And I say that even after my mom died, like th this was harder. This hurt. Um, this was so, felt so uncontrollable. Um, so I, it sort of forced me to start talking to some of my close friends. So I eventually started um, pretty soon after this happened, I, I started coming out to my close friends and telling them what had happened and asking for help, asking for advice. And they were all so kind to me and so good. And so really this, that was the first time I ever really started talking about it. It sort of forced me to face, you know, being gay right head on in the face. Whereas I had just been trying to ignore it for several years and just try to live my life and 
move past it. But this was really an incident that sort of made me force it uh, or tackle it head on. It's a great segment. Thanks for just being so honest. Um, you know, our older selves, your older self would love to go back with your understanding and and handle that situation a little differently. But in kindness to you or fairness to you, you've never been prepared for that situation. We don't talk about this. We don't, obviously in the priest quorum, we don't, you know, talk about these sort of situations or if some of you priests are gay this is some of the things you ought to be thinking about, or you priests that are straight, you may have some gay, you know, so we don't have any of these conversations to sort of prepare you. So I think you have to be kind to yourself. I do like that you told him you were gay because if he, why it was painful you left, if he thought you were straight and just bailed on him, that may have been more painful to, to know that you just, he just bravely came out to you um, and you just bailed on him. So at least there's some silver lining there. <laughs> um, so, and I love then that you decided to come out to people, um, close friends, and it sounds like those were helpful experiences for you. Um, so this podcast, probably your story, you know, it just helps others that um, maybe you're navigating some of these same waters or will be navigating these same waters. Um, I recognize you did all you could when you got on permission to marry a woman, your level of obedience and commitment to the church, which still remains. And that path just, it's so hard to unlock that path. This what another prior guest, I just hit a wall is what he was talking about. I just, I could go on dates, you know, we could do all the things that we do in the early part of dating, but I just hit a wall because I'm gay, that I could never sort of get past. And that often can lead to the darkest times that my listeners share to me is that is the reality of when they hit that wall. And some are able to get over that wall and some find their way into a mixed orientation marriage, but, um, but I, we don't, and the church doesn't recognize, recommend that as a universal path. If some find that is their path, I support those. And and I think you're still open. That could be your path. Um, but I think you're pretty aware of, you know, the difficulties of that road. Keep just telling your story. Sure. So so after I, that, that semester was so hard and very raw, very tender. Um, but I made it through it. I sort of reached a new equilibrium, uh, a, new, a new balance, new peace with sort of where I was at. Um, I eventually graduated and um, went on my way to UC Davis. I'd actually been to UC Davis for several summers before I started graduate school there. Um, I'd done internships while still a student at Provo um, at BYU. So uh, working in the lab that I work in now. So I, it was a relatively smooth transition. Um, but when I finally did move out to Davis later in the year from when this happened, it was, I thought really hard about how I wanted to think about myself or talk about this and whether I wanted to or not. And I decided I didn't want to, I didn't really want anyone to know um, that I was gay at first, at least, because, you know, it's something that you don't, you can't really put back. <laughs> Jeannie, you can't put in the bottle. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure that that was something I, you know, I really just wanted to be very sure that if I do come out as gay and everyone knows that that's something I really want to do, 
I was still, I was still thinking at the time that I could make it work with a girl, with a woman. Um, and I, anyway, at the time, I, that's what I really wanted. And I thought if everyone knew I was gay, that that might put some barriers on that. You know, like I agree, we don't, some of these things we don't really talk about in priest quorum or elders quorum so much, you know, what, what date do you come out? Um, so I laugh about that sometimes, you know, but I didn't, I didn't want it known. So I lived, life was pretty good at first when I moved out to Davis. I, there's sort of a honeymoon period when you move to a new place as you sort of discover who you are in this new area and who you want to be You can reinvent yourself a little bit. Granted, I had already known the people there for a while, but I was still sort of figuring out who I was going to be there. Um, things were going pretty well. Um, I was called into the Elders Quorum presidency, and I worked with the missionaries a lot. I felt I did feel a void in my heart, um, and it was really kind of hard to try and fill that. Uh, there were not really any girls that I wanted to try and date. Um, I honestly, I tried to fill that void with the missionaries somewhat. Um, I spent a lot of time with them, and would drive them around and go to lessons with them, and. You know, I loved them. They loved me. It was great. Um, and I overall, that was a good thing. I'm glad I did it. But they were filling part... They I used them to fill part of that void a little bit. And it's not sustainable because <laughs> missionaries get transferred. And also, they're just they're just missionaries. They're not there to, you know, fill this, fill this deeper meaning or need for connection that I have. And yeah, they were good friends. But ultimately, that wasn't their purpose. And so it, you know, as they would come in and get transferred and leave, it always left me feeling pretty sad. And um, I just, it just stopped being very sustainable after uh, four or five months of doing that. So eventually I was pretty, I was pretty in a bit bad place. I was sad, really depressed. And I decided to come out to my bishop in Davis. Um, I had come out to a few bishops in Provo before and it went relatively well. Um, Nothing really bad. Um, Some were supportive, others were just okay. but my bishop in Davis is really great and just showed me a lot of love and understanding and compassion. Um, and that was good. And that, you know, I felt good about that. And I sort of let that sit for another month or two. And eventually I felt the need to come out to a few of my friends in Davis um, at church. Uh, I figured if I am going to be in a dark place ever, I want some people to know about this. And I don't want to have to start from the ground up when I'm in a dark place coming out to them, explaining my story. I want to tell them my story and come out to them while I'm in a good place. So that way I can go to them ever if I'm in a bad place. So I had a few friends there that I started talking to. I think they're about, you know, over the course of the next year, I came out to maybe three or four people, not many. Um, at this, eventually I was called to be the elders quorum president. Um, it's been a, over, a little over a year since that happened. And when I went in for my interview with our stake president, I told him, you know, I said, I'm happy to do this calling and serve in this position, but I'm gay. I want you to know that. I'm, I told him I'm still, I'm committed to living the church commandments and guidelines, but um, said, you should know that before you call me. And yeah, he said, well, you know, as long as you're, you know, living the church commandments, then that's totally fine. He's very supportive and still is to this day. He's a great man. And um, all my, my church leaders have been and so that's been a, yeah, that's kind of been a fun calling to have while being gay. I mean, I was not, it's only recently that I've decided to come out, but um, that's, I feel like it's helped me have more compassion and more understanding towards people. I felt that same way on my mission. There were a couple gay or queer people that I got to teach and baptize as a missionary. And I feel like the Lord was able to use me 
to uniquely reach them. And even though they may not all be active in the church anymore at the moment, I still feel so connected to them. And um, I'm so glad that we met and connected on a spiritual level. I love that you're serving as an elders corn president. I love that you help people on your mission come into Christ through our church, queer people and just other marginalized people. Um, I think the process to be called as an elders corn president, from what I remember, is the bishop submits a name to the stake and and the stake um, approves that name. And um, both bishop and stake president spend some prayer, thought and prayer. So it sounds like your bishop, as you know, knowing your gays, submitted your name and the stake president. Um, I'm glad. I think it's really cool that you came out to both your bishop and your stake president, and they knew that about you before they extended this call, because I think that sends a message. It's sort of not like you unloading that during the call extending, and wondering if that would change the call. Hopefully, it wouldn't. Hopefully, it would be a non-issue. But it may it may be an issue in today's. LDS culture, but I love that your bishop and stake president knew that about you. And um, and I hope that it was, maybe it's just neutral, but maybe some leaders would look at that as actually a positive and say, you know, Alexander being a gay Latter-day Saint is maybe uniquely qualified to lead the quorum at this point. We have a need to bring everybody in to make them feel welcome. So wouldn't a gay elders corn president be uniquely qualified to do that? Um, not to say straight elders corn presidents can't do that. I don't want to sort of, but I, I just, it's sort of like, I, I hope that it's not just a neutral or something to overlook, but it's actually a positive character attribute that I think that's the way Heavenly Father looks at you in a positive way about this part of you, Alexander. So why wouldn't our leaders and your fellow core members and your ability to bring people unto Christ? Um, that's just kind of some of my personal thoughts on that. Um, I've always wished we had more examples of openly gay people serving or openly LGBTQ people serving. I think particularly of teenagers and pre-mission age, if they don't have many role models in the church that are LGBTQ and in the church, most of the examples are people that have left. Um, and and we may not give callings to people as much. And I hope we can normalize that, um, that somebody who is gay and a stake president knows they're gay could be called as bishop or as stake president or as mission president. And that would that seems like less likely to happen right now culturally, um, but maybe not. But it's certainly something that I think we can improve on. Why do you think it helps you to be gay and be an elder? It makes you, I don't want you to, I'm not, I, I don't, you don't, you don't want me to say a better elders corn president than you could be if you were straight. Uh, maybe you'd say that, but I just want, I think you're a better elders corn president um, because you're gay. I think so. I, I believe that. So share with our listeners why. I think that my ability to connect with other people, especially men, um, makes it so that I'm, it just makes me have more love, a greater capacity, maybe a, a different flavor of love, a different style of showing that love and of being organized and mobilizing. Um, not that, you know, maybe a straight elder scorn president wouldn't do some of the same things I do, but I think that 
this is this calling has also been a huge blessing to me. It's helped keep me active and involved, which is what I wanted. And um, it's really helped given me a reason to um, to reach out to people and connect with people, whereas maybe I wouldn't, you know, obviously you don't need a calling in the church to reach out to someone, but sometimes it helps to have that calling to, you know, when you make an initial approach or contact, say, oh, yeah, this is why I'm reaching out rather than, oh, I... I'm just a stranger. Nice to meet you. I mean, that's also nice, but it's sort of given me validated some of my reaching out. And, um, I really do enjoy the calling and, you know, I'm, of course I'd be happy to serve however, um, however I'm asked to, but this has been a huge blessing in helping me stay active and be involved. And something I did also want to mention is that in our ward, we, there are several other LGBTQ members of our ward. Um, almost, i about eight or nine, I believe. Not not everyone's out, um, but they are in our and they're at various levels of activity. But we have a good number in our ward, and I think that people would probably be surprised uh, the, at how many there are in their ward. They like, may not know about everyone, but there are people in our ward, and they do hold callings where they are active and involved in participating and. Um, yeah, so we're we're here. You may not know, you may not see us as visibly, maybe as me, but we are here and we are involved, and um, it's been a pleasure so far. I love that, and I think one of the things that a church leader wants to be able to communicate is I'm safe for my core members to be able to talk to me. I'm a safe person so that they can tell me what's going on in their life and they feel that I will be a kind, safe person and can sort of empathize and identify and help them along their way. And I, I'm i imagining being a 24-year-old in your quorum and I've got a 26-year-old gay elders quorum president and I'm going back 25 years of my life with today's mindset. And, you know, I think I, I think you would be a safe person for me. And I think that's so I, I, yeah, and I'm sure that people are opening up to you that are fully active or less active and say, I can just talk to Alexander about I just me. Um, the closest thing I have is just when I started to say kind things on social media about LGBTQ people as a YSA bishop and no more came out to me, Alexander, but um, some of the straight members said, okay, I can talk to this guy. If he's going to, if that's the kind of tone he's going to communicate in his ministry, then I know he's a safe person, me. And I, and some talk to me about stuff they'd never talked to adult before, not LGBTQ related, but some, they needed to talk about what was going on in their life to a safe person. So I think there's some principles that apply to both situations that um, lead to great paydays where you recognize, and I'm sure these have happened, that you reach somebody um, because of this part of you that would, wouldn't be possible otherwise. And isn't it wonderful for each of us to feel like who we are makes us uniquely qualified to do help people come unto Jesus and help them to find hope and healing? So this part of you that you've had shame about and self-loathing in some ways, is making you a better elders corn president. Absolutely, I would agree. Um, talk about your future. Um, 
you've got all these possible roads. You sounds like you've ruled out ruled out suicide, which is a road that some um, actively consider. And both of us invite any that are listening to please choose not to do that. That your better days are ahead of you. But talk about um, your future and how you navigate that. Sure. So for the longest time, I always planned, you know, follow, follow the path what's laid out. You know, I always wanted a family since I was very young, um, especially with my unique family situation. I, um, you know, I was always very curious about what my own family would look like. I won't lie. I, I really, uh, at one point really wanted to have kids that looked like me in some way, since none of my siblings actually look like me, they're adopted or step siblings or whatever. Um, and I thought, man, I would at least I would love to have at least one kid that looks like me. Um, but I recognize these days I I'm also very willing to accept what the Lord has planned. I don't think if you asked my stepmom or my dad if <laughs> the current family situation we have is what they expected, I doubt they would say that that's what they planned or expected. Yet here we are and the Lord's taken great care of us. Um, so moving, you know, I always wanted that for myself, but that was one of the hardest things in coming to terms with being gay is, you know, of course, if I, if I follow the teachings of the church, which I really do believe in, then that would put me on a path that would not let me have this thing that I've always wanted and that I've been taught to always want. And that has been probably one of the hardest things to wrestle with and try and reconcile and um, admit that desire and drive to have my own family has somewhat changed a little bit um, as I have wrestled with this. Um, I certainly still would like to have my own family one day. I would really love to be a dad. I don't really know what that will look like. Um, it may potentially be with married to a woman. Um, I, I tried for, I've tried for a long time to try and pursue that and it just hasn't really worked out, but maybe that might happen. I don't know. It, it might be with a husband. Um, I don't know. It might be as a single father, potentially, maybe I might adopt. I, that would probably be a while down the road if that happens. But I'm just, I'm very convinced that the Lord's going to bring people into my life and that I'm not going to be alone. I, I know I'm not alone right now. And I know I, tech, you know, I know I never have been. I know we always have Jesus Christ to be with us. And I know I have my wonderful extended family and such great friends. So I know I'm never really alone, but there are, there's still this, you know, emptiness in my life where a partner, that a partner would be in. And I know I might have to walk with that a little bit longer. Um, it feels right to me to stay in the church. Um, as, as I've gotten more involved in the extended LGBTQ church community through Twitter or other uh, blogs and this podcast, et cetera, um, I've realized that, you know, that, Potentially having a husband does not necessarily mean I ha would have to leave the church per se. There are people who, even though it's complicated, walk that road. Um, but at least for now, it feels right for me to stay in the church and to be serving in the way I'm serving and involved the way I am. And I understand that means there are certain sacrifices I need to make. But I always used to, I never would even let myself think about any possibility about dating a guy or anything like that before it was in my mind, that was doubt and don't let doubt into your life. Don't let it into your heart. Um, just shun that thought really quick before it turns into anything else. That's how I always treated those thoughts. 
And so I never really took the time to think about it. And since I've come out more publicly, that's I've had the space to do that, to think about these things a little bit more critically. And I have, I have critically thought about my future in the church and whether this is something I want to continue in. The hardest part is not that I don't believe in the church anymore. The hardest part is I do believe in it. I, I have a testimony of these things. Um, there's, I've had experiences that tell me this is where I need to be and that this is right for me to be here. Um, and trying to reconcile that with these feelings I have for guys and this uh, deep, deep hole um, that I, is desperately wanting to be filled. It's been hard to reconcile some of that. But for now, it feels like this is where I need to be. It doesn't feel as wrong anymore um, to potentially date a guy that used to just be so, oh, that would be the worst thing in the world. Um, but that I've sort of come to peace with that as I've listened to other people's stories and as I've gotten more involved, I've realized maybe this is something I might need to try someday for me to know if this is right for me or not. But um, it's, that day is not, not now. Um, I don't know if that day ever will come, but somehow those always seem, you know, staying in the church and potentially dating a guy always seemed conflicting to me. But um, these days I sort of have my peace with knowing that I need to be in the church right now, but maybe one day I will see what the Lord brings me and um, who he brings into my life. It's really honest. Thanks for being so honest about the future. And my heart just goes out to you. I mean, this double bind that you're in is the best way I can understand it. And you described it really well, Alexander. You love our church. You believe in our church. And you have this hole of just wanting to spend your life with somebody that, and there just doesn't seem a way to do both of those. And and so I just recognize the incredibly difficult spot you're in and that you don't want to give up on either of those because um, they're both such a part of you, a desire to have a life companion and, and fully participate in the church. And I don't know what advice you, what advice do you have for local leaders? What or what? What are it? What are the best things that YSA bishops or bishops or stake presidents have or could say to you when you open up like that? That's a great question. Um, I do want to say, hope, hopefully, it's okay for me to be saying these things as the eldest corn president. I, I don't know. Some sometimes maybe people might think, oh, maybe he shouldn't be saying that. But my leaders are so great because they've sort of let me have this space to think these critical thoughts and wrestle with this a little bit, even though I am in a leadership position. I think sometimes in the church, we have a, an idea of, oh, our leaders should look a certain way or, you know, don't express doubt. Or it's a, if you have a ha past or a history with doubt, that's okay. But our leaders don't struggle with that right now, obviously. But I'm here and I'm telling you, it's it's not always easy. And I'm, I'm trying to be honest about where I'm at. And I personally, I do think that helps me be a better leader. Um, but I think in terms of priesthood leaders, um, my bishop and stake president, they've just been so great. They are very supportive. They listen to me. They are very, um, they don't condemn me ever. Um, they don't judge me. I mean, they. I, I understand they do have a role of as judges uh, in Israel, if you will. Um, they do hold certain keys for that, but they don't personally judge me and they just show me a lot of love um, and they're, I feel like even if I did decide to step away from uh, me, either from the church or if, even if I decided to maybe date, try dating guys and they 
Um, I would step away maybe from the calling I have as I would do that, but I still feel like they would love me and want me involved some way and, and I would want to be involved. And the fact that they've been able to show me that has been great. I love the feeling of belonging that you feel in your way. This is a YSA word. Isn't yes, it? this is. Mm-hmm. And um, that they, you know, fitting in requires us to change who we are, but belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And I love that who you are is valued and put to work. And I love that you're able to be honest with your bishop and stick present. I've always wanted to hear the hopes, the core hopes of people I meet with either in the podcast or off the podcast and hear the hopes of their heart and especially LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And I just think that's part of good ministry is is to be able to create a safe place where the people we're visiting with will be honest with the hopes of their heart. And if there is a part of your heart that would love companionship, and that may be with a man, I think it's fine for you to express that to parents, to friends, to a local leader. That, Yeah, we both know that's outside the teachings of our church, so I probably don't need to remind you that. I just want to create a safe place that that you're able to share the hopes of your hearts, because then I can sort of walk with you on that road and be just on Team Alexander Baxter to understand what's in your heart. Um, And that doesn't cost me anything as a leader, as a friend. I don't think that compromises the belief in the church or the support of the doctrine of the church just to hear your hopes. And I think your hopes, even if potentially your hopes are eventually inconsistent with the teachings of the church. I don't think that disqualifies you from an assignment. In the book, I sort of talk about what are we going to do with members that that obey the word of wisdom? They don't drink tea and coffee, but privately hope that they can someday. (laughs) Are we going to take all of their temple recommends away just because they hope something changes, why they're willing to obey that and not campaigning it will change? And that's a fairly innocuous, and I think most active Mormons go, oh, they ought to keep their temple recommends. So I think we need to create space for people that if their hope is that something changes in our church or their path becomes possible as well as, as they're willing to live church teachings, that we don't compare them to the tares or being deceived by Satan. You're just, your heart is so good, Alexander. All you want to do is what's right. Your mission... Um, your assignment, your graduate work, the kind of career we really haven't talked too much. It's just all about the core goodness you are and your desire to help other people. That's just tell our listeners what your goal is with, tell them our listeners what your hope to, to degree, I didn't say that very well, what you're working towards in deg- a degree and what you'd like to do with your career. Of course. So, I'm at UC Davis right now, and I'm in a psychology PhD program. I'm in a biological psychology emphasis or field. So I study a lot of things related to the brain and to hormones and to behavior and things like that. Um, I actually, I'm very lucky. I get to work with uh, non-human primates, monkeys, um, as part of my work. And I really love studying them. There's a lot that we can learn about uh, social behavior and Uh, the different biological functions that support it and underlie it. And it is, I think it's no, I am, I understand why I'm drawn to this. Uh, We, in our lab, we study attachment and connection and bonding. Um, 
in the monkeys. And I feel like a part of me is just drawn to this to try and understand my own experience a little bit better um, and try and understand more about what's happening um, and how this process works in other people as well. And so that's what I'm working towards hopefully being a professor, a researcher, a teacher someday with that degree. Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You've done such a great job. Any other things you'd like to share? Yeah, thank you. I just, I do want to share one other thing about my parents. They've been very supportive of me. They're not perfect, but I can tell they're trying and they've made even a lot of progress since that day. They asked me, you know, if I was gay all all those years ago. Um, I recently had a conversation with them and I asked them, um, I told, I said, it's not currently in the plans, but I want to, I'm curious if I did start dating a guy, what, how you guys would react and I asked, would I be able to come home? To uh, could I bring my partner and my family to family events, things like that? And that they they first said they would love me, which was really like the best response. But after that, they said, you know, it would be difficult. It would be an adjustment for them. But they ultimately said, yeah, I would still be. I, my family could come to family events, and I'd still be welcome. And that that was very helpful and important for me because uh, I mentioned earlier how I was acting on fear um, rather than faith. Uh, that, that when they did that, that really reduced the faith to fear ratio. <laughs> I think we often act on faith and fear. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. And they took a, a, a good amount of the fear out of my action and boosted the amount of faith that was in my decisions. And it really felt, helped me feel like I was owning it. Um, the other thing I did want to say was just my family life has taught me a lot of important lessons that have sort of helped me navigate this. And that's, for example, how my mom taught me to pray um, to accept God's will, even as I, in, this, in the same prayer as praying for her to recover. For me, that I've sort of been able to take that and apply that to, I used to pray that I wouldn't be gay anymore. And I just prayed for that. And not, I didn't pray to accept God's will because I assumed that was God's will. But lately, as I've sort of been having more experiences with this, you know, I just pray. I've been just trying to pray to accept the Lord's will and whatever that is. And it's taken me surprising places and it's taken me into, you know, here I am sitting with you today. And um, I, it's that has just been a very helpful lesson for me. And just praying for the strength to accept the Lord's will, it, as I think as other people do that, it, it may surprise them what the Lord's will may potentially be for them. I love that you asked that question to your parents, and I don't think it's because they said you're welcome to bring your partner when you come home. I personally don't think it means you're more likely to start dating men or leave the church. I just think the principle they're sharing is that our home is a safe place and you'll always be welcome here. And so I I think your parents didn't sell at anything by saying that. They just honored um, a their core responsibility to keep the family circle together and make sure everybody's welcome. And I think it's a credit to them, just their whole journey with you and that you felt safe enough. You could ask them that question. That's kind of a scary question. It was. (laughs) Um, But I just think it's, there's, you take the shame out of it and the fear when you ask those kind of questions. Um, Tell our listeners again, how to find you on Twitter, Facebook, and your blog. Yes, of course. So, um, I'm Queer 47 on Twitter, <laughs> and uh, my Facebook is Alexander Baxter. I, I believe my Facebook post that I made to come out uh, earlier in July 
it, I think I put it to public, so anyone should be able to see that. Um, and my blog is linked on both my Twitter and my Facebook. Um, it's in my bio, it's on my homepage on both. So thank you, Alexander. I'm just going to read, I've been reading my book here. <laughs> it's on a computer screen, and I'm just going to close with a section that I wrote in the book. Um, it follows up on Elder Holland's comment that the, that the choir, there's room for the single, the married, the large family. There's room for those with different sexual attractions. And in our own ward here in Salt Lake, I'm just shifting our former bishop and current elders quorum president have had a kind of has had a scripture that represents a ward or a quorum theme. It's Mosiah 1821. Um, their hearts were knit together in unity and loved one towards another. And when I think of knit together, I think of a I picture different colors and textures of yarn skillfully intermeshed to form a beautiful, to form a magnificent finished article that is strong, beautiful, and resilient. When I consider our words, I see all of us working to knit together our hearts as we bring different gifts, attributes, contributions to intermesh the diversity and toward culture of acceptance, kindness, and inclusion to help all of us come into Christ. It allows the love spoken in this scripture to develop to cover and be felt by every ward member. I believe we cannot become the Latter-day Saints God wants us to be without our LGBTQ members. And when our LGBTQ member individual individuals stay in the church, they are not the only ones who benefit. We all benefit. They are vital to our church community because of their gifts, attributes, and contributions. So, Alexander Baxter, it's, a, it's just an honor to know you. I hope... What you're doing is normalized so that the 4% roughly of Latter-day Saints that identify as LGBTQ, this part of them can be normalized where it's just part of who they are and they serve in the same way that non-LGBTQ people serve. And we just come together in this scripture and Mosiah as our hearts are knit together um, in this beautiful diversity to create strength. Um, to me, that makes us the body of Christ that talks about and that we're working to become. And thank you, our listeners. This is Richard Osler, your host of Listen, Learn, and Love, signing up from another episode. Mm-hmm.